is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Okay, well, I want to start by saying thank you for this opportunity to uh, preach. I have to confess, you lot are making me very nervous, though. So if you could just be extra gracious. If I tell a joke, just laugh, even if it's not funny. My kids do it all the time, so I'm sure you can do it. Thank you. So Christmas is coming. Woo! Is everybody prepared? My wife's prepared, which means I'm prepared. And I'm sure all husbands can relate to that. Um, but it's a time where we look to Jesus. It's a time where we remember the nativity uh, and his coming into this world. And I'm sure everyone here is very familiar with the nativity, especially if you've got kids. You've probably seen a thousand of them. Year after year, the same old story of Mary and Joseph and the manger and the stable and the innkeepers. So there's a familiar cast. This morning, I want to take it, I want to introduce or remind us of a couple that do feature in the Nativity. In fact, they, the Nativity starts with this couple, but year after year, they get left out of the story. The donkey gets remembered, but this couple seemed to be forgotten. And that couple is Zechariah and Elizabeth. So you know that Gabriel appeared to Mary and said that she would become the mother of Jesus. You know that Gabriel appeared to the shepherds and told them that the king is to be born in Bethlehem and sent them on their way. But Gabriel actually made one other visit that first Christmas, and he made it six months previously and 90 miles away to an elderly man, an elderly priest named Zechariah. And so this morning as we prepare ourselves for Christmas, we're going to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it's my hope that we can look at their example and prepare our own hearts to receive the king who has now come into this world. So for Zechariah and Elizabeth, the first Christmas was a season of three things. It was a season of expectation. It was a season where they demonstrated their ordered priorities. And it was a season of encounter with the goodness of God. Those are the three main topics that we're going to talk about if you're making notes. A season of expectation in that Zechariah and Elizabeth waited patiently, faithfully, and expectantly for the coming of the Messiah. They understood what was going to happen. They weren't simply looking for a, a king to come riding in on a war horse and deliver them from Roman occupation. They were waiting for the one who was going to come and cleanse them of sin. Zechariah says that later in Luke when he, he praises God for the Messiah. He says, you have sent the one who is going to cleanse us from sin and unrighteousness and enable us to stand before you, holy God. This couple got it. They understood what the first Christmas was about and they expected it. It was one of ordered priorities. They understood that they lived in an imperfect world that life was not always easy at times and that there was going to be unanswered questions. But they kept their hope and set an example of persistence in faith by putting God first and the hope of the Messiah first in their hearts. 
and ultimately it was one of an encounter when Gabriel encountered with them um, and God rewarded them for their faithful persistence in faith. And so it sounds like they, they are some couple. It's a shame that they get left out so frequently. So this morning, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. You'll have to forgive me. I've got a bit of a cold. So I, I opted for this mic instead of the, uh, the one that goes on your head in case I need to sneeze or blow my nose. <laughs> but my mouth's also very dry, so I'm probably going to get through the entire bottle. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're barely mentioned in Scripture. In fact, the only place that you really find them is in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. They don't make any lists of the giants of the faith, but they definitely deserve a mention. So in Luke chapter 1, we find the complete nativity. Now Luke is my favourite gospel, to be honest. If you're a teacher in the room, if you had a class and you had Matthew, Mark, Luke and John sitting in there, Luke would get the A star. The other gospels are great, don't get me wrong, but they are average in com <laughs> comparison to Luke. Luke is the student who went above and beyond. He is more thorough. The Greek that he actually wrote the gospel in is of a far higher level than all the other three gospels. He's systematic, he's poetic, he's thorough, he states his purpose from the outset, and his book even has a sequel, Graham's favourite book, the book of Acts. Interestingly, it's the only book of the Bible that's actually written by a Gentile. All the others were written by Jews. And it gives us the most complete Christmas narrative, starting with Zechariah and Elizabeth. So Luke, like any good storyteller, he starts by giving us a little bit of context. He opens up in verse 5 and says, In the days of King Herod, king of Judea. Now if this was a panto, that's where everybody would boo. King Herod, that was a terrible boo. King Herod was not a nice man. He was a, a puppet king for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had consumed much of the globe by that point, and they were oppressing many, many nations, including the nation of Israel. And Herod was put up as the, as the king of Judah, and he viewed himself very much as the rightful king, almost in a messianic sense. It was Herod who rebuilt the temple and extended the temple courts, and he viewed Jerusalem very much as his personal capital. He's power hungry, he's suspicious, he had at least nine wives, some of them he executed along with other family members. Just think Henry VIII with a, a very Jewish twist to him. He was not a pleasant man. In fact, this is the same Herod that we always encounter in the Christmas narrative who ordered the execution of the infants in Bethlehem. So in the days of King Herod of Judah, it places us under Roman occupation. It places us under Herod, a horrible king. And it also places us at the end of what's known as the 400-year silence, a time of prophetic silence throughout the land of Israel and Judah, a time of spiritual barrenness and silence. So let's read through from verses 5 down to 14. So in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest 
named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were well advanced in years. I like the King James where it says they were well stricken in years. Sounds a bit more severe. So now while, now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall give him the name John. So we often know that Zechariah and Elizabeth are the parents of John the Baptist. But Luke shows us a few things about this couple in, in these verses. The first, he shows us that they're a couple of good stock. Zechariah is a descendant of Aaron. He's a priest. He's part of the order of Abijah, the eighth order. David cut the priesthood up into 24 different orders. But not only is, Aaron, not only is Zechariah a priest, he's married someone from the descendants of Aaron as well. So this couple are richly blessed in that, in the eyes of those around them, to be, have a, a husband and a wife, both, both from the priesthood, they would be seen as being really righteous, really special. If anybody was going to bless a couple, it was going to be that couple. But being of good stock doesn't guarantee that they would be good people. Luke tells us that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that they were perfect by any stretch. It would be easy to, to think that a couple who walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes were the perfect couple. That's not what Luke's meaning here. It's in the same way that when we read of, of Noah and David, we read that they were righteous men who walked righteously before God. Far from perfect. We know their stories. But what it does mean is that the true north of their heart was God, was Yahweh, was the Messiah. That point that they kept coming back to every time that they drifted off course, they always came back to their true north, the Messiah, Yahweh, God. Unlike King Saul, who we know didn't. So Zechariah and Elizabeth show that, showed us that they had a good foundation but being a godly couple comes with challenges. And you, we encounter and we're told that Elizabeth is barren. So she doesn't have any children. For all their devotion to God, for all their service in the temple, for all the times that they'd made the right choices, they still hadn't been blessed with the ability of conceiving a child. In the culture of the day, that was seen as deeply shameful. To conceive children in the day, children were seen as a gift of God, a reward for faithfulness, a reward for, for being diligent and following after him. But here's a couple that have followed after him diligently, but been denied children. 
Now we know that they encountered criticism. I'm sure after a few years, tongues began to wag. Look at Zachariah and Elizabeth. They look so righteous. They're always in the temple. But they've still not got kids, have they? God's not blessed them with kids. There must be something off with this couple. Verse 25, we know that when Elizabeth does finally conceive, she says, God has removed my reproach from among the people. So this is a couple that have experienced shame. They've experienced criticism and judgment. And by the time that we meet them in this story, they're an elderly couple. They're past the point of normal childbearing. So imagine the pain this couple have been through. Imagine them as a, as a young couple, freshly married, excited about starting a family, excited about being in ministry, excited about serving the God that they love. And then the years begin to pass and no child comes. They watch their peers conceive. They watch their friends and families starting families. But year after year passes and no child comes for them. stands out to me is that even though they live with unfulfilled hopes and dreams, it doesn't overshadow their spiritual life. It doesn't quench their passion. It doesn't stop them from diligently, faithfully seeking after Yahweh and waiting for the Messiah. Luke's description isn't of a couple who are elderly and who have lived a sorrowful, pitiful life of disappointment and hopelessness. Luke's description is that of a couple who are on fire for God, a couple who have not been overcome by grief and hopelessness and disappointment, but a couple who have overcome hopelessness and disappointment and remained into old age, faithful, vibrant, passionate. They still expected to see the goodness of God, even though life had been tough. So we see that they're a couple of expectation. And that first Christmas was one where they did not give up expecting and believing for the goodness of God, even though life was difficult, even though there was unanswered questions. And that's because they ordered their priorities. They were an exemplary couple. Proverbs 12 verse 13 says, Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Now their heart hadn't grown sick because their hope was not primarily placed on conceiving. Their hope was bigger than that. Their dream was bigger than just starting a family. If their deepest hope and their deepest desire were to have a son, I think they'd have been brought to the point of despair and real barrenness. But their hearts stayed vibrant because their hope was greater. Their hope was in the goodness of God, no matter what life threw at them. Son or no son, God was still faithful. Son or no son, God still had a plan and a purpose for their life. Their deepest hope was the goodness of God. And in him, they found all they needed to stay fresh and vibrant, though all the years passed by. I find it interesting that Elizabeth is described as barren, I looked up the, the uh, definition of barrenness and it said barrenness is the quality of yielding nothing of value. Barrenness is fruitful, fruitlessness. It's dryness of soil instead of fertile ground. It's the absence of life. 
And I don't think it's a very good description for Elizabeth. In fact, I think if there was a word that did not describe Elizabeth accurately, barrenness would be the one. See, they stayed vibrant. They both stayed vibrant. And you can see that, as we said already, that even though they had no children, they didn't dry up spiritually. They weren't overcome. They weren't overshadowed by grief. But you see it even after, after John's birth. You see the foundation of this couple in Zechariah's first words. He's waited all his life for a son. And when his son is born, his first words aren't praising God for his son. They're praising God for the Messiah. They're praising God that he's lived to see the Messiah come. And so you can see that by keeping their priorities in check, by making the Messiah, by making Yahweh their true desire, their true dream, their first priority, they stayed free from barrenness and very much on fire. So eventually the encounter comes where Zachariah is on duty in the temple. He's picked by lot for a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter into the temple, to stand just outside the holy place and offer the incense before the Lord. This was a privilege that priests could only have once in a lifetime. In fact, many priests went through their entire lifetime without receiving this privilege. And so it's on this day when Zechariah enters the temple to offer incense on behalf of the people. The people are assembled just outside that Gabriel appears to him and says, God has heard your prayer. He has an encounter with the goodness of God. The fruit of expectations and order priorities is encounter. There's something in, in it that when we seek God, when we put him first, when we make him our desire and we persist with that, we push through doubts, we push through struggles, there's something in that we, we don't earn an encounter, but God gives us an encounter with him. And Zechariah was just at work. It, you know, his encounter happened in the temple before the Holy of Holies. I don't really think there's anything in that. I don't think it's that Zechariah was in the right place at the right time, that he was in the temple before the Holy of Holies, and that's why he got the encounter, because the shepherds were just in a dirty field. Mary was just, I don't, we don't know exactly where Mary was, but she wasn't in the temple. She wasn't on some holy, hallowed ground. And so encounters this Christmas for us can come anywhere. It doesn't have to be in church. It can be in our workplace like it was for Zechariah. And the encounter brought for Zechariah and Elizabeth the removal of the reproach, of the shame, of childlessness. It was more than that, though. It was also a declaration that the long prophetic silence was over. And it was an announcement that the Messiah had come, that the Messiah was just about to come and that their son was to be the herald to just go a couple steps before him. The first Christmas had begun. And so what does this mean for us in Derby Christmas 2023? So as we move towards Christmas, it's my hope and my prayer for us all 
that it would be a time of fresh expectation, of examining our hearts and our lives and having new order priorities, and that it would ultimately be a time of fresh encounters with the goodness of God. So if you're here this morning, I'm guessing it's because you know Jesus, because you want to live a godly life. And a godly life doesn't necessarily mean an easy one, as we've seen from Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I'm sure everyone in this room has either unanswered questions or unfulfilled dreams that we're still waiting to see come into being. But we can experience peace in the storm, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, they experienced the peace of God. They experienced the fullness of God, the fullness of life in him before they experienced the provision. They experienced the peace of God before they had answers to some of their hard questions, before the shame was removed from them in the eyes of the people. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with the surging. God is our refuge and our strength. And I pray that it would be a season of ordered priorities. Christmas is a busy season for most but Christmas gives us a fresh opportunity year after year to examine our priorities, our hope, and where Jesus fits into our heart. Do we desire the gifts more than the giver, the blessings, the, the, the peace, or is Jesus the Messiah our true north, as it was with Zechariah and Elizabeth? Jesus came at Christmas to be our King and our Lord, but we need to allow him that position in our hearts. And most of all, I pray that Christmas would be a time of encounter. And whilst we celebrate Jesus' birth at Christmas, it's important to remember that he's not a baby anymore. That he is a risen king. Mm-hmm. And all the promises that he has given us apply to us today, even as we wait and look towards Christmas. But we need to let him into our heart. There's a few promises I've wrote down here just to remind us. And one's in Revelation. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, to him, come in and will eat with him and he with me. I will fellowship with him. I will sit with him. I'll get to know him. It doesn't say that if any man who is righteous and upright and holy and has it all together not opens the door, is anyone, if any man hears him knocking and opens that door, he will enter in no matter what your situation is, no matter where you're at, no matter what is going on in your heart, Jesus is the one who's willing to enter in this Christmas. And in Matthew, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if we put him first, we can have that burden, that weight of disappointment or sorrow or broken dreams just lifted from our shoulder 
It doesn't mean that we'll never struggle with it, but it means that we'll have him with us in the struggle, fighting next to us. So as I finish, I wonder if you would just stand. raise your hands or lift your hands if you're willing just in a posture of surrender Lord Jesus you are the king who is coming and you are the king who has come Lord you chose willingly to come here to live in this earth to be born in, in a stable in a dirty stable in nowhere significant you are a humble king. Lord, you were willing to humble yourself for us. You were willing to, to live in this broken world, to experience rejection and pain for us so that you could redeem us. Lord, you loved us so much that you were prepared to, to live here and to be crucified to die for our sins so that we could be made holy, pure, just as if we'd never sinned ourselves. You truly are the Messiah and we celebrate your birth this season. And Lord, as we move towards Christmas, as we take this time to examine our own hearts, to examine your position in our hearts, to examine our priorities, Lord, we, we, we want you. We want that encounter with you. We desire that encounter with you. And so we pray, Lord, come, O oh come, Emmanuel. Come this Christmas in a new way. Lord, I pray for each person here in this room that you would come in a fresh and new way, Lord. If they've known you for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, I pray that you'd re reveal yourself in a fresh and new way to them if they barely know you, Lord, if they've only known you even for a matter of days, weeks, or months, Lord, reveal yourself afresh this Christmas, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.